pre-recorded. This is the Red Ticket Blues Podcast. I am Brian Buckley. This is being recorded on January 13th to hit the internets on January 14th. Remember, you can always listen to the show on iTunes, TuneIn, Radio, Stitcher, and YouTube, and follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at Red Ticket Blues. Today on the Thursday Talk, a personal favorite of mine throughout the years since I was a kid, Mr. Steve Summers from WFAN, a sports talk show host there who really needs no introduction. And in fact, because of that, I'm not even going to give an introduction. Let's get to the interview. All right. As promised, uh, for the last 20 years, I've heard this guest voice in the car, at work, (laughs) in my headphones, on my bike. Uh, and anywhere else, it is truly an honor to have WFAN Sports Talk Show host Steve Summers on the podcast. Mr. Summers, welcome to the Red Ticket Blues podcast. Well, Brian, uh, I would say the same. I'm honored as well to be on with you. It's very flattering. I'm very honored uh, that you asked me. So I think I will have a little bit of fun. Absolutely. Uh, so, Steve, let, let's start here. Now, you're a San Francisco guy. But you've, yes. you've always had your your, your 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 sights set at being a New York sportscaster. Yes. What, what was behind the drive to cover sports all the way on the other side of the country? Well, to me, New York, and it still is, the beginning and the end of the world. Uh, it was, you know, there are three kinds of New Yorkers, Brian, the native, the commuter, and then the person who sees New York as a destination, as a goal, as a dream. And if you were to look at my high school yearbook, it says under my graduation picture, among all the things that I did in high school, valedictorian, baseball, basketball, all the things like that, uh, it says destiny, it says ambition, New York broadcaster. And so this was a dream and you know, if you take an airplane from, say, California to New York, it's about five and a half or six hours. That flight took me 22 years. <laughs> uh, now, before you landed in New York, you, you became sort of a, in, in, before you became a quintessential radio guy, you were a TV sports anchor in California. Uh, yeah, yes. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you're right. And I did radio, too. I actually... Started with uh, with radio when I was still a teenager, about eighteen, and uh, in San Francisco, and uh, then there was an uh, you know I did uh, I worked at two or three uh, radio stations, very small, and I was a kid, and you know, and I was cheap, and they didn't have to pay me anything, and I still don't get paid too much. <laughs> but the bottom line is that I started out doing radio. And I uh, even started with uh, the Fearless Forecaster on a top 40 radio station uh, in which uh, he made predictions on, uh, Fearless did, on uh, high school football games because it was a top 40 radio station and played, you know, music that teenagers and college kids listened to. And uh, they decided to uh, uh, hire me to do high school sports and I covered Dan Fouts, and I covered Mike Holmgren. In fact, when I had Dan Fouts on the other day, who you know covers uh, was covering with Iron Eagle the Jets games uh, here in New York for CBS, 
Uh, we had him on the fan, and, uh, he, and uh, when I welcomed uh, Fouts uh, to the program, and this wasn't the first time he had done this, but when we welcomed him to the program, he asked me, how, how's Fearless doing? <laughs> so he remembers from his high school days what uh, Fearless was saying on the radio about his football team and usually predicting his football team to lose. But I, I did start in San Francisco uh, doing radio and then got into television in San Francisco, then to Sacramento, then to Atlanta, then to L.A., and then eventually here in New York, where it seemed like I never was going to be hired to do TV uh, in New York, the opportunity came, uh, and I got lucky when I got hired, and I was the very last hire at WFAN back in July of 1987 when they were thinking, Brian, about doing an overnight talk show that had never been done before with any kind of uh, radio station doing sports, that's for sure. There had never been a 24-hour, around-the-clock uh, sports radio station, number one, and so nobody had ever done an overnight show, and I was their last hire. They were thinking either they would have somebody live overnight or they would repeat daytime programming overnight or they would bring in syndicated programming overnight. And the agent that I had at the time convinced them, and so did I, uh, to give me the chance we would make it work. And, of course, I had no idea if it would work or not. You never know what you know the audience is going to think of you. You do what you do and hope that it works and hope uh, that by being yourself it can attract um, an audience and you can, you know, have some stability with, uh, with, with a job. And uh, so I was the very last hire. They eventually decided to have a live person overnight. And eventually, after 10 years of doing it, uh, Don Imus had called it the best overnight radio program he had ever heard. You know, that radio program obviously encompasses your voice, your your iconic voice. And I mean, in a New York Times piece written a few years ago, you were quoted as saying, I don't think I have a good voice. I don't, Brian. So I, a, I, a, I, a legion of schmooze fans begs the question, yeah, no, what I do know. you like about it? Yeah, nasal, raspy, uh, you know, not the uh, typical deep voice with your balls hanging all the way down to the floor. Sounding as if uh, you're speaking from Carlsbad Cavern or the bottom of the Grand Canyon. You know, the real deep uh, John Sterling has that kind of voice, for example. And there are other guys at WFAN who have very deep voices. I really don't, but, you know, I'm glad it works for me. The other day we did, uh, when uh, Mike Piazza was inducted into the Hall of Fame, we had Johnny Bench on. Uh, the great catcher, Hall of Famer from Cincinnati, as you know, Brian. And uh, we recorded it uh, because he couldn't do it when I was on the air that evening. So we recorded it in the afternoon. I could not hear the playback when it played on the air because I didn't want to hear the sound of my voice. <laughs> 
You know, there there are two other legends in the history of uh, entertainment that didn't like their voice either. So, Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix. So I think you're in good company there. Oh, I really am. Two uh, two old hippies. So maybe you can bang out a little all along the Watchtower, make it a troika. I like that a lot. Uh, well, just like a Rolling Stone, I would be. Uh, I mentioned your legions of fans you have. Uh, they'll tell you that what makes your show distinct is that it's it's more than just a talk show. It's a performance, uh, especially you know taking into consideration your monologues. With that being said, how do you prepare for your radio performance every night? Well, you know, that's a great question, Brian. Uh, sometimes it takes me 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes me four hours. Uh, before, uh, you know, uh, uh, joining you today, I was working on, on a monologue, uh, for later on tonight. Uh, because Evan Roberts is such a big Nets fan, they're having him at the 6.30, uh, this evening when the Nets are playing, uh, the New York Knickerbockers. They're having Evan over at the Barclays Center, uh, work 6.30 to 7.15 before the game. Right. So, uh, this evening, I won't be on until after. Uh, the Knickerbockers and the Nets game, and so I'm uh, having uh, the re- I'm really relaxed today, not feeling the deadline, not feeling any sense of urgency to get this monologue that I'm working on now done for 6:30 because I won't be on until about 10:30 or so later on tonight. So I have all day and early evening to work on the monologue, and I'm working on it because. I'm trying to do something related to the movie Concussion, uh, in which uh, I'm uh, putting together a sequel called uh, called, uh, Concussion 2. And I'm not going to uh, tell you any much more about my my movie, which is all audio, of course. I do have a production guy working right now on putting the elements of this movie together so that later on tonight we could all hear the trailer. But the bottom line is I'm very fortunate uh, that uh, my thinking or creativity, I guess is the right word, uh, does work because uh, nobody else really does what I do, and they're probably very happy about that, and maybe the audience uh, as well. But I'm a little bit different than everybody else, and fortunately... uh, you know, the audience of WFAN can accept somebody who's a little bit different than everybody else. How do you how do you judge your performances every night? Because from what I've read and heard, you, you can be your biggest critic. Oh, I am, yeah. Very, very often I come home at night uh, not as happy as I could be. Uh, there are some nights when you feel like a million dollars, and uh, there are other nights... When you feel like, uh, you know, if, if you could offer a refund on what you were doing, you would do that. Uh, no, and I, and I think that check and balance system is very healthy. Uh, I, I don't want to come in and say, you know what, I've been here 28 years. All I have to do is sit down and start talking and magic is going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Uh, I'm not as bad as I used to be. Uh, uh, because you feel more uh, accepted and you feel more that uh, more of what you are doing is working and has worked in the past. Otherwise, I would be in the unemployment line. But the bottom line is that, no, I care a great deal 
about what I do. I don't take myself very seriously, but I do take my work seriously. Uh, you've been a sports talk show host pre and post internet. Uh, I, I've spoken to some sports talk show hosts, and they, 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 with their preparation involves getting a bunch of web pages up as the show's going on. To you know, that's how I get my information. Has sure. has the World Wide Web influenced the way you prepare and conduct your show? Oh, not really. I, I, I mean, you know, well, in, in this way, it gives me more information. Obviously, I mean, it, it could. Uh, 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 start uh, ignite uh, an idea. Uh, there's just so much, uh, w- so much information out there, and my thinking is: the more information you have about everything, the better off you are. And uh, I use so many metaphors, whether it's as I just have been alluding to uh, the movie, you know, making uh, some kind of, I mean, whatever it may be, I, I love to use alliterations and uh, metaphors from real life into the toy department, which of course uh, is sports. So the bottom line is I think the more you know about things, you can't know everything, and in fact, you know, uh, there's a lot more I don't know than do, but I think with information, whether it's from the front page or the back page or any pages in between, the more you know about things, uh, the more uh, you're, you're, you're more better off and uh, the more you feel confident that whatever it is you are going to be doing on a given day, that you can get it done uh, as best you can. You know, be, besides the monologue, some of the best parts of your show have to do with your interactions with the callers. Uh, many sports talk show hosts uh, barely let the callers make a point. Your, your philosophy is slightly different. So my question is, what effect do callers truly have on the outcome of the success of a show? Or does it really come down to managing the callers themselves? Well, I think it's a little bit. That's a good question also. It's a little bit of both. Uh, they're like my co-host. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not with another uh, person. I, I'm not Boomer and Carton, and I'm not like with Joe and Evan, and uh, Mike does it solo, and I do it solo. But I like, I love taking calls because I don't feel I'm getting different than they are. I'm really a fan who uh, realized a dream a long, long time ago and have been able to make a career out of it. And I realize, Brian, and believe me, this is not... Uh, false humility here. You have to be lucky. Uh, and I think I've been probably more lucky than good in my lifetime in that uh, I'm so lucky to be doing what I'm doing. I think the real talent sometimes in this business is not necessarily being yourself on the radio or TV or whatever it may be in any of the performing arts. I think the real talent is making it happen and then holding on to what you made happen. So I think uh, talent is really relative because you, Brian, are just as talented as I am and given the opportunity... I wouldn't go that far. Oh, yeah, I would. I would (laughs) because you might be just as successful. You might be more successful. Uh, And there's always that dream and always that opportunity and there's no reason to think that you and your approach or your presentation would be any better or worse than mine because you never can figure out the audience. If, if, if programmers 
could ever figure out what the audience wants or what the audience needs, I mean, uh, people would never be fired. People would never be hired. So it's an ever-changing, transient business in which uh, the real talent to me is getting the opportunity. And eventually, Brian, your number, like my number, coming up, your number will come up, as will somebody else's. The scary part is that you just don't know when. You know, taking all that into consideration, luck, talent, opportunity, uh, you, you put this into, a, obviously, a long career at WFN, and it shows your, your ability to work in different areas. Is You sort of run the gamut with all the different time slots you work. And yeah, you're right about that. Uh, and yet the most fun I had was overnight because it was new. It was fresh. I was discovering myself, discovering my style. Everything was like a small baby contemplating fingers and toes for the first time. Uh, you know, by the time you're an adult, you know, you don't even think about your fingers and the toes. But as a kid, when you realize that you can do things that you've never done before, it's a revelation, it's an enlightenment. And that's what the overnight show was for me a long time ago when everything was new and everything was young and everything was fresh and it was working, whether it was the monologues, whether it was the production pieces, whether it was talking to callers, I didn't even realize that it was having the impact that it was having, but now I do, of course, but then I used to think that the only people listening were the people that were on the telephone line. The uh, now, you, you, obviously, you've worked both day and night. Is there, if someone asked you, what is the main difference between the day audience and the night audience? What do you think you'd say? That's also a good question. The night audience is uh, mostly home and uh, mostly at you know bedtime. Now uh, it's a different audience during the day. You're going to have people on the move, people uh, coming and going to work, driving around. Uh, you know, maybe some uh, uh, homemakers, whether they be women and men or men. Uh, but at night, you have just a different audience uh, for the most part. Uh, people who are either working late, who are up late, uh, you know, people who are home getting ready for bed, uh, you know, maybe uh, after television, putting on the radio, uh, to get the latest, uh, you know, information or entertainment after, you know, watching late night TV, whatever it may be. But you have more of a workforce audience during the day, and uh, that workforce is home at night. Uh, we, we know all those callers, whether it's day or night, you, you treat the callers like family, you've said in the past. And, I mean, yeah, there are the recent callers right now, like a Ralph in Manhattan or Simon in Yonkers, but there have to be a few over the years overall that really stick out to you. Yeah, there have been, and I think some of them have passed away, you know, from 28 years ago. Um, I didn't know anybody when I came here. It was exciting. It was a new world. I had no family here. I had no friends here. I didn't know anyone. I didn't even know anyone at the radio station when it first started. And, you know, that most of those people that I was meeting were 
working during the day. I was the only one, a late-night engineer, late-night producer, uh, one or two people in the newsroom. That was it. Uh, everybody else with the radio station, I didn't know. So the callers did become friends. And there are, to this day, Brian, a number of callers that I had way back at the very beginning that I call friends today, people that I see, that I talk to, that I've gone to games with, broken bread with. So I wanted to make friends when I came here. And they didn't know me, and the audience, the, the audience didn't know me. I didn't know them. But I was determined uh, to let them know that I was so happy, so lucky, and so grateful to be given the opportunity. I even said on the very first night that I worked that if I get fired from this job, it won't be because I'm not going to try. And, you know, from that point on, and I repeated that, you know, maybe over the first year or two, and then I realized it was working and doing okay, and people were calling up and saying, you're pretty good. And, uh, you know, I used to call my mother and my father when they were alive, and I would tell them, I don't think that I'm going to get fired tomorrow or the next day, maybe next week. I don't know, but I think it's working, and I think it's okay. And finally, I was making them proud. Uh, there, this I hear this question asked all the time on, on the internet or or just in passing with people mentioning a caller. Uh, now, I believe you've said in the past, but I just want to confirm this: that Jerome in Manhattan is one of those callers that's unfortunately passed away. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I believe so. I don't have official confirmation, but we think he has. Okay. Uh, he wasn't in good health when he was calling. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I used to hear from a cousin of his and. Uh, uh, and I don't hear from her anymore. Uh, so I, I just don't think, I, I hope he is alive and I hope he is okay. Uh, but he might be in a facility. I'm not really sure. I, I have no information at all. Uh, I'm only guessing that he might have passed away because I know he wasn't in the best of health and, you know, things were never that good, even when, he was calling on a regular basis, so I really don't have any information about him. But there, were, you know, uh, there are regulars that we have, and you know, I were from Staten Island, and Joe from Staten Island, and you know, uh, Ralph, as you pointed out, from Manhattan, and you know, there are there are regulars who call all the various shows, including mine. Uh, but uh, the callers in the very beginning. Uh, that I don't hear from anymore that may have passed away. There was a Dominic from the Hunts Point Market in the Bronx, and because I'm the son of a grocer and because he was in the grocery business, uh, he once brought down 19 cases of fruits and vegetables uh, for, for, for me to spread out uh, to uh, the people that were working overnight. 19 boxes. That's a lot of, of vegetables. <laughs> yeah, sure, for the son of a grocer. Uh, and so, uh, and there was a Martin from Flushing, and as I say, Dominic from the Hunts Point Market in the Bronx, and a Vinnie from Queens, and, you know, they were great callers. And John Andres, who used to work with Marv Albert, on the uh, Knickerbocker broadcast, 
way back at when uh, the, the station started, and before Mike and the Mad Dog, before Imus, John Andres used to say real sports fans were listening to me late at night. And I took that as a compliment and probably was the very first personality on WFAN to make a difference. Speaking of personalities and that being personality that, you know, occasionally joins you, perhaps your most famous caller, Jerry from Queens, that being Mr. Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, Jerry's been a part of the show on occasion throughout the years, and especially with the Mets playoff run recently, or World right. Series run. Uh, how'd you guys hook up? Well, uh, uh, one Saturday night, about 1990, uh, I'm home alone, wasn't married then as I am now. I was watching Saturday Night Live, and it was in July, it was very hot, and when the show was over, about 1.30 in the morning, right down the block, I took a walk. Uh, to the bodega, to the uh, deli on the corner to get some ice cream. And, uh, uh, you know, it was about 145 or so. I had a pair of sweatpants on, a T-shirt, wearing a Mets hat, uh, and, uh, you know, wearing uh, some uh, uh, sneakers with no socks. You know, because I had been in bed watching Saturday Night Live, so... I, you know, just put myself t uh, together to get out of the apartment and walk down the block uh, to the store to get the pint of ice cream. And I see two guys in the store, nobody else other than the guy behind the counter. And there's two guys, one a black fellow and the other a white fellow. And I, I you know, I kind of do a double take. And w one of the guys, uh, the black fellow I didn't recognize at all, and, and the other guy was wearing a Met hat also, and I found out later that they had been uh, to uh, Catch a Rising Star, which was an Upper East Side comedy club that's no longer uh, uh, here. Uh, and it was right around the corner from where I lived. So they, Seinfeld and George Wallace was the black fellow, another comedian, and a very, to this day, a very good friend of Seinfeld. And they had gone to see, you know, comedians at uh, Catch a Rising Star, and then left to go and buy cereal at the deli. Well, anyway, I'm uh, over where the ice cream is, and I do a double take with the guy wearing the bed hat. Kind of looks familiar. So I walk, I realize it's Seinfeld. Now, his show really wasn't really, uh, you know, on the air yet. Uh, he and Larry David at that time were, like, putting it together. Uh, and uh, But I recognized him from Johnny Carson and, you know, late-night TV. And, you know, uh, and I had seen him in person doing stand-up. And so, I mean, I, it was Seinfeld. And so I walked over to him, and I said, I was very nervous, and I took my card out, which I don't even have cards now, but I had a card that said I was with WFAN, had my name on it, the whole thing. And I said, excuse me, I, I, I don't mean to be rude. I I just want to say hello. I'm a fan of yours. He never made eye contact. He was looking at the cereal on the shelves. He never made eye contact, but he took my card he looked at the card, never making eye contact yet. I've already said, you know, hello, don't mean to be rude, just want to say I'm a, I'm a fan, just want to say hello. He looks at my card and then looks at me and right in the eye and he says, 
You're Steve Summers? <laughs> I listen to you every night. I couldn't believe it. I was wow. That's great. Um, you know, Jerry, uh, you're, spe- you're talking Jerry, talking Hollywood. Now, I watched a movie the other day. Great movie. It- it's an older movie from 1979. It's called The Visitor. Have you ever heard of this film? <laughs> Is that not the worst movie you've ever seen? <laughs> I actually did not see the movie, but I did see the clip of you, of course, as you were yeah. a part of that movie. I went on oh, YouTube man. and you were announcing, uh, I'm not sure if it was a Hawks game specifically or it was a, it was a basketball game. Yeah, it was at the Omni in Atlanta because I did TV uh, in Atlanta at uh, one time in the 70s. And the director of the movie, who didn't speak English, uh, an Italian director, was making a movie. And the 1979 was not long after The Exorcist came out. And that came out in 1973. So The Exorcist was so popular that there were a lot of spinoffs, a lot of bad movies having to do with the devil and possession and exorcism. And so this movie was uh, just awful with some girl (laughs) with oversized sunglasses sitting in the stands making the basketball explode as the team she did not want to see win, uh, about to win with a dunk, and she makes the Omni explode, the whole thing. And it really is funny. Uh, it's just an awful, awful movie. But at the time, the people that were in the movie were very well known. Uh, there was a Glenn Ford, John Houston, Shelley Winters, and Lance Hendrickson, a very young Lance Hendrickson, he's been in a lot of Rambo movies, Terminator movies, uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, with Sylvester Stallone. He's been in a lot of bad movies, but he's been a working actor. And he, you know, I had to do an interview with him in the movie, and they paid me $400, you know, to do this. The director had seen me on TV uh, in his hotel room, you know, just having uh, the channel that I was working for on in his hotel room. And he thought, okay, this is the guy we could use to do some play-by-play and do an interview with Lance Hendrickson, who was playing Ted Turner, a Ted Turner type. And uh, and that's how that movie and me got together. But it was just, that movie played about two minutes uh, in theaters before it was like uh, just thrown away. But uh, uh, in the very beginning of uh, my working at WFAN, I actually played some of the audio from that movie, having fun with that movie and making fun at that movie. Uh, so that's great to hear. I, I, it's not going to be on my list to watch with the way you described that. Oh, no, it's blowing up basketballs and. Right. No, no, it's awful. Not <laughs> even well done. But it's a, a spinoff right. from, the, from The Exorcist. So finally, Steve, WFAN is approaching 30 years of existence. What do you think has made WFAN, and you specifically, successful for that long? Luck. <laughs> Luck and, uh, and well, no, that, that, seriously, I, I don't want that to sound like uh, false humility. Okay. I, I, you know, in the very beginning, WFAN, nobody thought it was going to last, uh, let alone any individuals uh, who were on the air. They, they, they were thinking the concept wasn't working. Uh, it took a, a few years for the radio station to really get its uh, legs under itself. But uh, if it was going to work anywhere, it was going to work in New York. 
where you have the best fans and the best teams and the passion and the knowledge, and you're a great example of of, of that, Brian. So with Thank people you. like you here, uh, the, the station found itself and people found WFAN, and, you know, the rest is uh, radio and New York and sports history and American popular culture history as well because it's the first of its kind. And as you know, Brian, uh, now all over the country there are, you know, one or two uh, all-sports radio stations just about everywhere. So, uh, but, uh, you know, again, if you were to talk to ten different people, uh, on why one guy is still there or successful, you'd probably get 10 different answers. Uh, for myself, I, I think a lot of it is luck. Uh, I've worked hard. Um, uh, you know, I, I have a cousin, and she said to me, Stephen, you were just due. Because um, the career had been a little shaky and a little bit rocky, and a little bit unstable before coming to New York. I always say, you know, in New York, people say, if you make it here, you can make it anywhere. I couldn't make it anywhere else, but I made it here. That's great. Uh, Steve Summers, I want to thank you for coming on the Red Ticket Blues podcast. But before you go, I have to play us out. I have three quick questions for you. You ready? You got it. All right. Where exactly does the name Schmooze come from? Well, uh, it's, a, you know, it's a Yiddish word uh, for idle chatter. And uh, one night, uh, way back in the beginning, uh, about 2.30, quarter to 3 in the morning, I said, we're schmoozing the SPORTS. And uh, that's uh, just start. People started calling up saying uh, with the schmooze and schmoozing. And I was going to drop it, but the audience at the time wouldn't let me. All right. Uh who is the most polarizing New York sports figure since you started at WFAN? Polarizing? I'm not sure I understand, Brian. Okay, who's the most that's made the most noise, the most the most calls that you've gotten throughout all the years? Oh, I see. I got it. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I would say Patrick Ewing, Daryl Strawberry, and Mark Messier because of what he did in 94. But definitely in the history of the station, Daryl Strawberry... I would say Patrick Ewing, uh, and then I would say Mark Messier, those three. Okay. And finally, what is your favorite Seinfeld episode? Well, the, the whole, uh, there are so many, I don't think we have the time. <laughs> uh, certainly anything that had to do with sports and Keith Hernandez, so that ought to give you a clue. There you go, there you go. He is the iconic WFAN sports talk show host, Steve Summers. Uh, you have a Twitter name, you, you have a Twitter account, but you don't really handle it, though, do you? Oh, I, right, I don't. It's uh, my producers uh, that handle it. They tell me that it has quite a following. Oh, it certainly I don't does. think I've ever read any of my own tweets. <laughs> you can follow him on Twitter at Steve Summers WFAN. Steve, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. An honor and a pleasure uh, for me, my good friend, and I hope we have a chance to do it again someday. That's Steve Summers. What what else can you say other than that's Steve Summers? It was it was amazing to do. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and I hope everyone enjoyed it. it. It's Steve Summers. What else can you say? You can listen to this podcast over and over again and all the other podcasts of the Red Ticket Blues podcast 
Podcast Podcast on iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, YouTube, and follow me on Twitter at BrianBuck13 and at RedTicketBlues. Like us on Facebook and remember to subscribe and review the show. It's greatly appreciated. So with all of that being said, I'm out of here.